Okay, guys, good to see you. If you'll open your Bibles to uh, Esther, chapter chapter 2 of Esther, and uh, we just need to finish that last paragraph. Didn't get to talk about that. And then we will move into to chapter, th- chapter 3 here. Uh, <clears throat> so chapter 2, we, of course, in chapter 2, have just discovered... Uh, the uh, come to the uh, highlight of Esther becoming queen, winning the contest, uh, the whole thing. And it is one of those things that uh, is uh, interesting to, to consider. And as we go through these next two chapters, I want you to get in your mind about how unlikely it would have been for Esther to become queen. So let me just stop right there. You tell me why, what about it is makes it so unlikely. Pardon? She's not Persian. She's not Persian. Okay, what is she? She, and what else is she? She's, she's an orphan, Jew. Which all she's got is, she's, she's got great looks. That's what she's got. And she somehow figures out how to please the king in the one night so that she has better than all the other women. And that's, that's <laughs> something else. You know, she doesn't have a Persian background. She doesn't have any of the things that we might normally think about. And yet, here is an orphan uh, Jewish girl who impresses the king and becomes the queen. Obviously, we wouldn't have been surprised if she didn't win and she just goes to the next court of the concubines and there you are. She just uh, lives there in in uh, luxurious uh, isolation <laughs> for the rest of her life. And, and that, that might not have surprised us, but it wouldn't have been a story that had been written about in the Bible. That would have just pretty well been the end of the story. So as we think about some of these things, it's, it's really important to consider just so many things that are happening that are against all odds, that are shocking and surprising. And that's one of the things that that we see right here uh, at the end. The king chooses her. They throw a great feast and everything is looking up. Now, if you're Mordecai at this particular point, what might you be thinking? Is this all good or bad? I think he won. Well, sure. I think he won because it would elevate his position. Yeah, whatever. You have now somebody that is Jewish, even though nobody nobody knows yet, but he knows. And this is one of those things that he might be seeing, hey, a little turning point here in the favor of us Jews. Uh, We have somebody now who is in that position. This really looks good. And uh, you you just feel that little uh, uh, sense of of hope and, uh, hey, uh, look what what could could happen now? What could turn out well now? This uh, this sounds exciting. All right, so that's that's where we are then uh, in in the book. Now, notice um, verse 19 through 23 of chapter 2. 
Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now this seems to be, remember there was a gathering prior to going in to see the king, and then there's the second gathering afterwards, and uh, uh, Esther is chosen out of those. Verse 20, Esther had not made known <coughs> her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up. All right, so in spite of <clears throat> the fact she's now queen, what do you notice uh, important about that particular text? Catch us up here a little bit. Okay, what do you, what do you notice that's, that Esther still does? Yeah, she's still obeying Mordecai. Mordecai does what Mordecai commands. She doesn't change anything. She still shows her submission to Mordecai, who has been as a father to her, has raised her. This would be somewhat natural. But the fact that she's been elevated does not change the fact that she is uh, going now to follow Mordecai's commands and does not real, reveal who, who she is. That's going to, of course, be important in the story. So we, we notice that. And then uh, verse uh, 21 through 23, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Tiresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he, he told it to the queen, Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found it to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. <clears throat> All right, so here we have observations about this. Now, so tell me some things that you should be able to make some observations, conclusions about the fact that uh, Mordecai discovers this, tells Esther, Esther tells the king, it's investigated, the two guys are hung, and the king is saved from the plot. Um, go ahead, Mara. Okay, well, but if the king is assassinated, what happens to him? What's his position? As the cupbearer to the last king, you might be gone. <laughs> well, it, it, what, what position is Mordecai? Yeah, he, he is one of the officials at the gate. And we're, we're going to uh, notice that when, when you get over to uh, verse 2 of chapter 3. All the king's servants were at the king's gate. So these are special servants, not uncommon, at the king's gate. It's remarkably similar to the plot to kill the Jews. And how okay. the plot came about to save them. Yeah. Okay. He saved the king, good. he saves the Jews. Same story. Right. Okay. Very good. So we're seeing things like that. Yeah, sure. He's a Yeah, an informant. Yeah. I mean and, and in fact, what would we expect to have happened when he saves the king's life? Get a promotion, at least. Yeah, get some kind of uh, accolades. It is recorded in the Chronicles, in the king's presence. And uh, we're expecting, 
hey, <laughs> this is even better. Uh, not only is, is Esther the queen, but now what a uh, struck a, 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 a lucky stroke here that uh, Mordecai catches this this uh, this uh, this uh, uh, this conspiracy and is able to reveal it, and the king is saved. And wow, that's a that's a really really uh, big deal. Now. Notice how this is written in the in the uh, uh, chronicles of the kings. I've mentioned to you before one of the main historians of of the Persian Empire, a guy named Herodotus. Uh, he actually refers to an official list of benefactors. Maybe I can put that up here. Yeah, he he refers to an official list of benefactors recorded in the Persian archives, and indicating the acts of loyalty that were usually rewarded immediately and generously. So this was quite notable uh, historically among Persian kings. If something great was to happen, especially that benefited the king, it was very, very quickly uh, noted and uh, somebody followed it and followed up on it and there was a reward and uh, accolades that were given because of this. And yet in this particular case, zero. <laughs> Nothing nothing actually happens uh, that uh, gives any kind of accolades to Mordecai. Does Mordecai indicate he's upset about that, by the way? No, he didn't, he didn't give any indication whatsoever that that bothers him as to what really has taken place. So here's a phrase that I keep putting in my notes. It just so happened. And here's another it just so happened that what normally would have taken place didn't. And it's a good thing, isn't it? Because it is then that uh, uh, ace card that's tucked away and is able to be played later on in order to save uh, Mordecai from the gallows and to save uh, the whole nation. So this, this is one of those, it just so happened. And we continue to see evidence of the unseen God who is behind uh, all of the things that, that take place here. <coughs> okay. Um, now, let's go on then to uh, connecting chapter 2.23 with chapter 3.1. And when you read 3.1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were before him. Okay, what's the, what's the weird thing here? <laughs> what you say? What's, yeah, why? You, wait a minute. We just read about Mordecai saving the king's life and some buddy out of nowhere all of a sudden gets elevated above everyone else and it doesn't make any sense. If I'm reading the story, my expectations are that 3-1 is going to begin with Mordecai was exalted. Mordecai is not exalted. And... Uh, so everything, that, again, how many times have we seen in the book? Reversals, 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 reversals. And just about the time you think, hey, things may be looking pretty good for the Jews here. And then it's like, kawam. Not only does Mordecai not get exalted, but Haman, who is an Agagite, gets exalted. And now we have a turn really downward uh, very, very rapidly.
Okay? So you see those things happening very, very quickly, and this temporary reversal obviously does not escape Mordecai's attention, because along with it comes the command, everybody is to bow and honor uh, Haman the Agagite, all right? Uh, I'm persuaded that if whoever was exalted had been just some guy, not an Agagite or whatever, probably, and and it probably wouldn't even have caused Mordecai to blink. But who's exalted is what is, of course, significant here. All right, before we go to chapter 3, I would like to consider a a few things here and get a feel. Because one of the things that we're going to be doing in Esther is is to compare our period of time and how we live in a similar situation in a in some ways, some areas, similar type of culture, things moving through life sometimes with completely out of our control, government doing things that we, we, we can't even believe, getting out of, just totally out of our control, things moving in this way, and we here trying to live as the people of God and to get a feel of some of these things. So, I would like you to put yourself in Esther's position for a moment. Take a guess. We don't know this, but how old would you say she was? Ballpark. Teens. I'd say 16. Probably, you know, maybe somewhere. You said what you said, Michelle, somewhere a teen or 19. Yeah, so probably somewhere in that category. I mean, after all, when you're choosing the most beautiful virgins in all the uh, uh, kingdom, uh, who are you usually choosing? You know, some late teens and and maybe at best some some early 20s. And so she's a young gal. And uh, and that's the way it is. Now, us older guys, we would get disgusted at that. We want to see a nice... Nice looking older woman. That's what we would, you know, there you <laughs> These are youngsters here. These are what it is. And uh, we'd, I just look at them as children. Uh, so, so there you are. Sorry if you're, you're not that age. <laughs> but uh, they're just children. <clears throat> so that's what's going to be chosen. All right, so you put yourself in that position. You're an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, or whatever. And all of a sudden, you're just scooped up. And all these women from each city are just grabbed and scooped up. Uh, you have no choice. You have suddenly become owned by the king. Just let that sink in. You are owned. You have suddenly been called by the king and you, you're owned. You're, you have become his slave servant for whatever he desires. Not uncommon in a, uh, a, a dictatorship type monarchy that was going on in Persia. He gets whatever he wants. He wants a pile of young virgins, he gets a pile of young virgins. So you're that person. All of a sudden things are moving very, very rapidly. Can you imagine the, the, uh, the confusion in your mind? Can you imagine the, everything's just going so fast, you get to the, the king's court and suddenly, you know, you're assigned to somebody. I mean, it's like you're in the army now. 
you got no control over anything. We're starting with boot camp where we get you all fixed up. In a year, you're going to go see the king, and that's just the way it is. I, can you imagine the confusion in Esther's mind? You imagine it's like she jumped into a raging river and she can't stop it. Life is just heading down uh, this path very, very rapidly. Okay, yeah, she's, and her uncle, does, her cousin, or what it, does, does, does he say yay or nay? She says yeah. Go right ahead. The only thing he says, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. So, you know, this has been your father all your life. You go, okay, that's, that's what you, that's what you have to do. So I, I, I'm just trying to get you to think. See, we've done a lot of moral judgments that have gone on through this, and it's kind of it's natural to do that. But when we put ourselves in these positions, we have to understand that in life, especially life where that is so much of it is controlled by others and beyond our own choosing and control, that there are times that things aren't so black and white. There's times when there's going to be great confusion. And as a young person, I mean, honestly, if she is 18, 19 years old, can you imagine how difficult that is to suddenly uh, put, that, uh, put that on you? Uh, this is exactly why we send that age group to war, because they, they, they don't have the fears the rest of us have. Uh, so a lot of things go, are going on here. Now, I had a thought this afternoon that I might throw out to you. We, and I, I, I have, and, and we all have, talked about how, wow, one night with a pagan king that you're not married to. Doesn't sound good. I would like you to think about this. From Mordecai and Esther's point of view, how do you become a concubine? How do you become a concubine? How did Hagar become a concubine to Abraham? Pardon? She was a slave. She didn't have a choice. There was no choice. She was a slave. Yeah. She just, did they do a ceremony? Not that we're aware of. It's just like Sarah takes Hagar, goes over to Abraham and says, Cheers. Voila. You now have a concubine. And the next morning, Hagar is now owned by Abraham, now one of Abraham's wives. Then the same thing with the king. Maybe this is the way Mordecai and Esther are looking at this. I'm not, I'm being taken as a slave, a concubine. I have no choice. This isn't like sleeping with somebody I'm not married to. This is, I've become a concubine. And the worst thing that can happen is, I didn't win the queen, but this isn't sexual infidelity. I'm suspecting that may have been the way they looked at it. And I've read so many commentators that emphasize, oh yeah, why would she have sex before marriage and stuff like this? I'm not sure she looked at it that way, and I'm not sure that Mordecai looked at it that way. That's the way you become a concubine. Somebody more powerful says, you're mine, I own you. Um, you're now my concubine. 
and you will be there for me if I, anytime I call you. That changed things maybe a little bit in your mind, how you, how you look at this? But it's really not that much, aside, the sexual side aside from it, it's the same as Daniel. Daniel was owned by the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, but he's not being... Yeah, the sexual side. Yeah, he, like, yeah you're right. But it, yeah, he does not have the... He still sexual. has to obey the king. He does. Yeah, and the only time he ever rejects is he, he says, look, if I sit at the king's table, he sees something that honors the gods of the king and things like this. And so he finds a way to back away from that without being a rebellious guy. He just says, give me a test. Let let's test this. Let's test this. Right? Yeah, Wayne. But Joseph was in a similar situation. And it cost him his position. Yeah. But he stayed, he stayed faithful. But... You know, if you take that in the present world, things happen that people have no control over. Yeah. I, we actually went to a, went to church with a young girl that experienced date rape and got pregnant and, you know, wasn't required to marry yeah. But you don't, you need to be empathetic to this person, to yeah. her. And I think that's what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I'm, I'm just wanting you to, as I, I have, just in putting the hours I've put into studying this and the thought of this, I'm, I'm thinking about it 24-7. <laughs> I'm so immersed in it. And so I'm, I'm just, this all came to my mind this afternoon. I go, wait a minute. You know, we're making all these accusations about this girl and about Mordecai and all this. But how do you become a concubine? This is, this is what happens. So anyway. Not to justify the, the immorality of a concubine. The, attempt, the intention of a concubine originally was that it was supposed to provide the patriarch or the king with a male heir. Yeah. So concubines didn't, they weren't just prostitutes. No. They, no, had, no. they had a purpose and <clears throat> mission. Exactly. Um, and it was, it was significant because they could have produced the heir to the throne. Mm -hmm. um, and in the Old Testament, even in the times of, of Isaac and Jacob, well, Jacob in particular, but Isaac and Jacob, the sons of the concubines were blessed. That's exactly right. So, um, exactly right. So there's a lot that's going on here that we haven't brought up before, and I thought it important to, to just mention it to you. Don't we have that going on today? With men or people kidnapping young women, young oh, girls. Oh, yeah. I mean, now that's, I would suggest that's different in the sense that this is, it's different in the sense that in this society, this was acceptable even in the law of Moses. So in the law of Moses, God allowed, I'm not saying he was saying he wanted it to happen, but he did allow concubines. He did allow it. It took place. Most of the kings uh, certainly had these. Some of the judges had these. Gideon had more than one wife. He had a lot. Uh, so there's this is something that is not foreign to the ancient Near Eastern uh, culture. So while we're, our sensitivities are just like, blah, you know, to them, much different. And that's maybe why the author does not make a real big deal about this. And neither does Mordecai, neither does Esther. So once you put that in, in your mind, uh, going uh, from there, uh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Another comment. Just because God allowed it doesn't all doesn't mean he approved it. Yeah, and I want that's very clear. I want to make sure that's the point. Like slavery, he allowed that too. Yeah. Didn't mean he approved it. 
Yeah, uh, he, uh, divorce. He, as Jesus said, he, he let you do it because of the hardness of your heart. Not that he approved. It was not approved. The second thing I thought of, about the timing of this with regard to um, Esther, she was born in the Persian Empire. She did not live in the Babylonian Empire. So right. the only empire she knew was the, was was the Persian. Persian Emperor. That's right, exactly right. So she would have been born probably... Uh, before. About the turn of the century there. So. Yeah, well, before so Hatchers became emperor. Yeah. Right. Right. So anyway, you, you're, you're getting a feel of this. Now here's the application very quickly. So we, need, I do, know, we do need to go on chapter 3 here. But this, uh, this illustrates the times in our lives where decisions are not so simple. And especially if you live in a kind of government that may have this kind of control over your personal life. Sometimes a barrage of events comes in that pushes us in one direction, something like just getting caught in a raging river. And, and all you know to do is to think about what, I, what am I, you, you wake up and go, uh, you, your, your mind is just going everywhere, what do I do next? What's next? And none, none, in, none of the things that you can, that you can come up with are even going to be allowed to happen. You are in this river and it's going in a particular direction and, and you can't stop it. And all you can do is the best you can do at the moment. And this is the world you've been born into, as Chip just said. You've been born into that kind of government. And now you put yourself in her position. What are you going to do? Go ahead, Blinda. Nothing that justified what, when you say what she did or what specific. Spending a night with the king. It wasn't justified. I don't care what the culture allowed I don't, I, I, or supported. That's not justified. So as far as having empathy and feeling the pressure and what she had to deal with, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But Daniel felt a whole lot of that pressure. And Daniel had his life threatened. And he didn't count out. Yeah. I would still go back and bring up, <clears throat> am I justifying a sin by saying under this particular system, you could easily be captured and become a concubine? For example, in the law of Moses, Israel, if they go and conquer a nation that God said, go conquer them, he allowed them and even talked about in Deuteronomy how they would, they, he said, if you take a captive uh, young woman for yourself and you take her and she becomes your wife or concubine, and then he gives some rules about how you're going to treat her and things like this. So what I'm suggesting is we have maybe jump too quickly uh, not understanding that type of culture to say that her sleeping with the king that one night was actually a sinful action rather than she's captured, she becomes a concubine. Okay, I have a question. All right. You're saying it was not a sinful action? I'm trying to throw something out here that, uh, I mean, I'm being very plain about it. No, I, I, if, if what I'm saying is true, it wasn't a sin. She's captured as a concubine and she has no... It, it, why can't you, you know, God had that happen and, and, and did not condemn it. But look, well, he doesn't condemn a lot of things in, in this book, which we already know that, because this is a narrative. Right. 
I'm not talking about whether it was condemned in Esther. I'm saying it's not condemned in the law of Moses. So that's pretty significant. And all the kings did it. And all the kings kings of Israel Israel did it. Israel did it. Solomon had... (laughs) Well... Yeah. But they, it was a David practice. had. It was come practice even. David had twenty some wives. Uh, there were. There you, said, were I'm, I'm accept, you said God accepted it. I don't believe they ever accepted it. I think there's a difference in accepting yeah. and allowing. Chip and I already said that one. <laughs> no one is saying that God is approving, but God allowed. Just as Jesus said when the Jews said to him, uh, Moses said we could divorce our wives and. Jesus immediately said he did not. I'm paraphrasing. He gave that because of the hardness of your heart. He allowed something to happen. He allowed more than one wife. There were many things that he allowed. He didn't obviously approve of it. We're talking about something that God allowed here. Is David going to go to hell because he had more than one wife? I would be hard pressed to do that. Well, Solomon probably is. <laughs> I mean, it never says he repented. Right? I got to got to go to David here. You're ruining my class. No, no, it's not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Thank you. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, we'll talk about it tonight. <laughs> this is the problem with having this guy live with me. You know, he just waits till later before he can he can he can jump. Let's let's go on, Wayne. Um, so what I what I'm wanting you to see that a lot of these things are not as simple and cut and dried as you might think. And as Belinda said, I'm interested primarily in you empathizing with the position because there are going to be times when you could be caught up into a similar thing and knowing what's the right thing to do is not so easy. What do you want her to do, fall on her sword? That's, is that what we're going to do here? This is what she would be doing if she said, you're not taking me anywhere. She just fell on her sword. So I'm, I'm wanting you to do that. Okay, so let's, let's go on then to, to chapter 3. Um, so we, we see here uh, that uh, uh, Haman is uh, exalted. And then verse 2, and all the king's servants who were at the king's, king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole uh, kingdom of Ahasuerus. All right, so let's let's just uh, have a few considerations here. Uh, first off, in chapter three, as we've noticed here, you have the king's servants and the king's gate. This is a, an idea, of course, and of, of an official position that they have. Uh, we know uh, ar- some archaeological evidence that we have because of this. So I thought I'd put that up here. Uh, implications who these people are, as we said, they're officials. So the gate entering into the walled palace. Common Complex was a large building in which legal, civil, and commercial businesses uh, business was transacted. So this is 
an area that is the center of um, just just like we would have downtown Nashville. You know, you have the Capitol building, you have uh, all kinds of offices, you have all, all sorts of things that are going on here. Uh, furthermore, um, when, assassination. Yeah, and there's some assassination plans too, that's right. So uh, archaeological evidence, the gate was built by Xerxes' father. Uh, it measured 131 feet by 92 feet, so it's a very large complex. Uh, this gate was a large building consisting of a central hall that led into the royal compound and two rectangular side rooms. The central hall was supported by four columns and a tri, uh, tri trilingual inscriptions on the bases that read Xerxes the king says by the grace of Manasseh, whatever. Uh, the gate, Darius the king made it, he who was my father. So you can see these are all discovered by archaeological digs uh, that ha had taken place. Uh, we further know a little bit more about it. The excavation of this gate and the square in front of it corresponds well to the details of the palace that's given in chapter 4 verse 6 indicating that the author was possibly familiar with the, pa the palace complex at Susa. So that, that is, uh, you know, reading that was interesting to me. Possibly this author is quite aware, uh, maybe even present, to be able to uh, visualize and see exactly what is, is going on here. All right, <clears throat> so just, just briefly some of those things. I guess I didn't click that up there enough, uh, but there's, uh, there's that, uh, uh, that finding too in the excavation of this gate. All right, so we, we, we see that. Uh, moving on just, just quickly, we, we've already talked about this plenty, so I don't need to uh, belabor this point. Uh, his refusal of bow is not for religious reasons. Uh, this, this seems to be because this is an Agagite. <laughs> In fact, 2 Samuel 1, 2, just to confirm this, this part we didn't talk about, just to confirm this, 2 Samuel 1, verse 2, David accepts his subjects bowing to the ground and paying homage to him, and he does not object. So that would give us uh, more um, uh, ammunition to be able to say, Nothing, it would not have been wrong for Haman uh, to bow uh, to, to the king. Pardon? Mordecai. Or Mordecai, not as Haman. Yeah, Mordecai bowed to Haman, excuse me. Uh, so the, the refusal here to bow is explained simply in the words Haman the Agagite. Uh, he immediately recognizes this centuries-long battle that has been going on since the, uh, the reign of, uh, of, of Saul and, uh, and God's decree back in about 1400 that all of the uh, Amalekites uh, would be destroyed because they attacked Israel when they were at their weakest point. Uh, and I think maybe I have this. Yeah, Karen Job states, it, it is known from other sources that in general Jews did bow down to pagan officials of the Persian court. It was not a religious act, but one of court protocol, very much like uh, 
going before the Queen of England before she died, and the, the protocol would be to, uh, to give some kind of bow before uh, the Queen. So no, no, no big deal here, and we want to center then on, obviously this is a result of Haman the Agagite, and uh, that's how this all, all gets going. Now, um, we notice here down when we get to verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, and the twelfth uh, year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the date of Adar. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people. And so he makes his appeal. Before he does, though, he cast pur. So archaeologists have unearthed uh, what this actually is. And uh, uh, the, the idea of pur is, uh, they found even some samples of it. And these are clay cubes, very much like dice. Some of them had inscriptions on them. Some just had dots on them, just like dice. And they were cast in order to discern the will of the gods. So this, this then is not terribly foreign to us, except that it's not a game of chance. It's not gambling. They thought that the gods then uh, were the ones who gave, gave answers uh, to this. Today it's done by gambling. To then it was done by, by divination. Uh, you will notice that he cast the lot in what month of the Jewish year? Nisan. What month is that? First month. What's significant about the first month of the Jewish year? What happens? Passover. Exactly right. So this is Passover time. It's a very, very significant month. And this then is going to uh, uh, really ruin Passover <laughs> for the Jews when, when this is announced. So very first month of the year, the lot falls on the 12th month, 13th day of the month, which is 11 months later. So that's kind of a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> we got some time. It's not like two weeks from now. Uh, he, they, they've been given a lot of time uh, for something good uh, to happen. Uh, so uh, month of the Passover of the Jews. Uh, note the time stamp that's given here. It's the 12th year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. Meaning Esther has been queen now for five years. Pretty important. She's been queen for five years. It's been a lot of time in that regard, a lot of time that's gone by. She's gotten very accustomed to the palace, got accustomed to palace life. Uh, she would be very comfortable in that uh, situation. Notice now how Haman responds, verse 8. He goes before the king. He says, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. What is notable about the way he introduces this people? Okay, he, he doesn't mention who the people are, right? And there's many nations they've conquered. Yeah, could be anybody. And all he says is, 
They're a pest. And they don't do the king's laws. Now, of course, that's a lie. Uh, that's not true at all. Hey, uh, Mordecai didn't obey one law of the king. But it's certainly not true of the rest of the Jews. They've been living peacefully. Uh, you have a Jew who's one of your court officials at the gate. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of anti-Semitism going on in the kingdom. So this is, this is a bunch of lies, and he doesn't even tell Ahasuerus who these people are. What do you think of Ahasuerus at this particular point? Yeah, why? Well, he doesn't even bother asking. He doesn't ask. That's right. He doesn't ask. He's just like, what? A, this guy is the biggest lazy bum I ever saw. He Notice how he over and again just sits back and goes, what did, what's the counselor want to do? Oh, you want to get rid of Ashti? Okay, let's get rid of Ashti. You want to have a, uh, a virgin contest? Sounds good to me. We'll just do that. Well, you want to kill a bunch of people? That's all right with me. Let's just go along. Who cares who they are? That's right. I don't want to worry about it. I'm too busy flirting with my uh, uh, my my leadership's wives. You know, I mean, I, you just this guy is awful. <laughs> he, he's just he's just terrible. And there's a certain people. The king shows tremendous apathy in that, and uh, so interesting. Notice in verse. Um, and verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that this be destroyed, that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasury. Now, I want you to consider how, how, how valuable uh, that is. Haman's promise is to pay 10,000 talents, it was 300 tons of silver. Whew. And not only that, the revenue that we know that was given uh, Xerxes' father, Darius, the revenue was 14,560 talents a year. And what's the king's treasuries like right now? Pretty light. Light, why? He lost in battle. Lost in battle to Greece. He has been depleted. Those dollar signs sound really good. This almost doubles his yearly uh, taxation and treasury that he receives. And 10,000 more dollars, you know, sounds uh, really, really good to him. And then you, you get down, uh, so, and of course, he gives him the signet ring and all that. We've talked about that before. And you get down to verse 12, and the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict. What day? 13th day of Nisan, the first month. What happens the 14th day? Passover. Exactly. Now you have Passover. So you just imagine being a Jew and this edict goes out that in 11 months you're all dead and now you're going to observe the Passover. I think my thought would have been, well, there's no blood to get put on the post this time. We're under the curse and now we're going to die. I'm not sure it would have been a joyous Passover that would have taken. We're never going to see another Passover, which would have uh, been been really tough. Then you see in uh, uh, one other thing there. Notice how uh, I mentioned I mi missed verse ten. Notice how uh, um, Haman is described this time: the enemy of the Jews. 
Notice how different that is from what you see, saw back in chapter 3, 1. He's just said his name. This time he says his name, and he is the enemy of the Jews. So we send all the letters out. It goes everywhere. And what's going on in verse 15? The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Everything's going haywire. Who's doing fine? The king and Haman. Sitting there drinking wine and everything is just going to pot. We'll find in chapter 4, Esther doesn't know what's going on. This, is, this whole palace situation is just a, a bunch of people insulated in an area. Uh, those accusations have been made about Washington, D.C. repeatedly. That you have no concept what the average person is living like because you just have the inbreeding of ideas that go on between you and you, you, you think you have an idea of what the normal people live like and you don't. Uh, so very, very uh, similar situation. This becomes just an empire-wide problem. And yet, it was just one itty-bitty little anthill of a problem that could have been solved. And this is the way Persia uh, does things. All right? Um, by the way, got to mention one thing. The common denominator of this kind of inbreeding arrogance and pride is a lack of respect for the moral and eth ethical standards of God. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes and especially the king and once you get rid of that pride and arrogance go to pot and, uh, and then you just see uh, all of this uh, maniacal type of living. Alright, very good. We'll go from there. Thank you. <laughs>